But my friend said, well, why don't you say, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. And I went, oh, I like that. So I was saying it all the day before, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. I'm the kind. So my alarm went off the next morning and I went, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. So I got up and I took a walk and discovered the neighborhood. And then I had the, a great meeting because I'd seeded my consciousness the day before of, well, yeah, I want it for a reason. I am the kind of person who does that. And for some reason that doesn't trigger our ego as much. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Sometimes when life feels out of control, like it has for many of us this last couple of months, We overcompensate by attempting to influence the things that we think we can change. It's as if we've gotten the memo along the way that the more effort we put in, the better we perform, the more accomplished we are. And yet, all this message solidifies is the idea that we need to push harder and do more to feel worthy of praise and love. The biggest downside to overcoming your perfectionism is that you will continue to feel anxious and stressed out. Continuing to strive for unrealistic standards ensures that you are always demanding more of yourself and needing to commit more effort and energy towards being the best. Perfectionism prevents you from tuning in to who you are at the core because rather than be comfortable with your true self, you are constantly trying to live up to other people's expectations or the pressure that you put on yourself which makes you feel more stressed and exhausted over completing tasks or accomplishing things. What's more, perfectionism can make you feel especially uncertain and reluctant to try new things as you might worry about your potential or your ability to come out of your comfort zone. It can stunt your true growth and potential. At the very least, you may struggle to find time to care for yourself. And instead of giving any time to yourself, you're giving 150% for the sake of achieving more. This may lead to you feeling resentful towards your job, relationships, as they are taking up so much of your time and energy. And the result is constant disappointment in yourself as you strive to reach your unreachable expectations. It can feel like a rat race. And at the end of the day, you are never truly happy with what you've accomplished. Like many women I know, I have fallen into the perfectionism trap. And the outcome, it never truly feels good. Just a couple weeks ago, I turned in my newest book manuscript to Penguin Random House. This is book number eight for me. And it's the most important book I've written to date. So it felt like everything was on the line. I didn't want to disappoint my readers or my community. I wanted to get this book right. I mean, beyond right. It took me 11 months to write it. And when I finally turned it in on May 4th, I cannot tell you how many times I had reread the book. It felt like a blur. I scrutinized over every word in each of the 23 chapters. I had poured my heart and soul into it and left no stone unturned. The day I turned it in on a Monday, I knew I should have been celebrating this massive accomplishment. Goodness knows my husband bought me this ridiculously gorgeous bouquet. My best friends sent me flowers. It really felt on the outside like a celebration. But all I could think about was what if I didn't get it right? What is the editor going to say? Are they going to tear my book apart? Now, the reason I'm sharing the story with you is to let you know that the need to be perfect in that moment absolutely got in the way of me celebrating. I just couldn't enjoy or savor the moment because I couldn't let go of the worry. That's why I think today's message is so important. I cannot tell you how grateful I am to be interviewing Dr. Jane today about letting go of the I shoulds, the I need, the I gotta, the I have to statements that I personally say to myself every single day. We are so hard on ourselves. 
Let me know, do these statements leave your mouth every single day too? Like, I gotta go do this, or I need to do this, or I have to go do this. Like, those are things I say all the time. Today, Dr. Jane is gonna give us a new perspective on how to love our wins and come from a place of self-love and compassion, and to recognize that we are worthy of love and wins and celebrations and all those things. Now, before I bring her on, I want to quickly sing Dr. Jane's praises. Dr. Jane Tornatore is a therapist, speaker, and author based out of Seattle, Washington. She's been in private practice for 15 years. Her style incorporates compassion, curiosity, deep listening, and optimism. She has dedicated her career to help people love themselves and have self-compassion. She has authored over 20 articles and recently published a book, Everything is Perfect, Just Not Me, a roadmap for self-acceptance. Let's welcome her onto the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast. Dr. Jane, how are you doing today? I'm really good. How are you? I am doing so wonderful. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy that we're going to be talking about this really important topic right now. And that is how we can address and have powerful practices for our inner perfectionists. And I know people are hearing that right now and they're like, oh, <laughs> this is something I, I live in every single day. And Dr. Jane, before we get in, I have so many questions for you. I'm really excited because I know, particularly for women as well, we can get stuck in that inner perfectionist way of operating. And sometimes we feel really stuck because we're in it. And what I'd love to you to just take a moment is could you talk to me about kind of that defining moment when you knew that the work of self-compassion, the work of self-acceptance, and you know, the, all the great work that you've done in the world, like what was that defining moment where you knew this is what you were meant to do? I have two. I think the one that I'll share today is when I was in graduate school. So I was in graduate school to be a therapist. So I knew I wanted to help people be healthy. And I was dating someone that I thought I was going to marry. And then uh, he left me for a previous girlfriend. And I was devastated because one of the beliefs that I grew up with, and you know, nobody said this to me, but this is one of the beliefs my little brain made up is I am worthy if a man loves me. If a man loves me, I am worthy. If he doesn't love me, I might as well not be here. So I actually got to the point of being suicidal. So I'm like, this man I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with doesn't want to be with me. I guess, I guess I'm, I'm just not lovable. And then I was reading a book and it said these words. It said, the other person hurt you once. You hurt yourself thousands of times every time you think about it. And I'm like, oh, oh. He's talking to me because I hadn't talked to my ex in like two or three months. And every day I was sending jabs into my heart about that whole situation. And why am I, why does he not love me? Why am I not worthy? Why, what, you know, I was totally in victim mode. But when I read those words, I was like, it's me. It's not him. I'm the one doing this. So at that moment, I'm like, well, if I'm the one doing it, I'm the one who can change it. And so I made a vow that I would never trust somebody else more than I trust myself. And that I was going to look at this wacky belief that I developed and figure out other ways of being because that one clearly wasn't working for me. So it was that moment. So bless his soul for breaking up with me because he really started me on my path to self-love. I was in school to help others be healthy but I wasn't even thinking about self-love. I wasn't even thinking about, well, maybe I'm the most important person to help. <laughs> so that was the time that I was really, it was a, it was a huge wake up call and I'm forever grateful for it. That is such a great story. That is such a great poignant defining moment. You know, so many of us, you know, we've had beliefs that were given to us when we were younger, or maybe even in high school or wherever that may be that we've really anchored into that we kind of judge and perceive everything around and um, to be able to have that, that insight, you know, and, and to be able to see it in a different way. You know, I grew up with some beliefs and I remember there was a belief that I just was really having a hard time letting go of. And I had a dear friend of mine 
by a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Joan Rosenberg. And, and she, I was telling her a little bit about it. And um, ultimately she said something that was so profound to me. And she's like, they, they didn't have the um, authority. They never had the authority to tell that to you. That was so powerful to me because I had always given them so much power that they always had that authority over me. And she's like, they never, ever had the authority to say it. I love that. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of reminded me of that moment where that you are kind of replaying this out and how often we've done that, where yes, it happened the one time, but we're preferring to have it happen many, many, many times to ourselves. (laughs) I love to stop myself again. Awesome. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my goodness. So that is so profound. Well, I want to, I want to steer because I know we're talking about perfectionism and, you know, perfectionism definitely come from belief as well. And, and definitely a sense of worthiness is connected and tied to that. So talk to me about, I know so many people feel like, again, they're so stuck in it and they don't know how to escape it. And they're not moving. It's like moving through mud, trying to get that perfect thing, or it's just not good enough. How do we become perfectionists? Well, one of the things I love about learning more about the brain is it, it gives us so much more compassion for ourselves because especially as perfectionists, we think, Oh, it's my fault. This it's my fault. There's something wrong with me. If I were just better, I wouldn't be a perfectionist. I'm like, which is a beautiful circular belief that just keeps us going into the perfectionism. So our brain from zero to two, it's basically in like Delta waves, which is just, you know, we're just taking in experiences. We aren't consciously thinking about them. They're just coming in. And then around the ages from two to six, our brains go into theta state, which is mostly when when we're under hypnosis, our brain is mostly in theta state waves. So when we're in theta state, we're just taking in information and we're aware of it, but our brain is not questioning it. It's like, oh. And now just taking it in, just taking at, it at face value sponges. Like <laughs> this is how the world works. Thanks for letting me know. This is the truth. Awesome. Which is why we can believe in like, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter bunny and any other, you know, thing we as kids believe in, because it's like, well, if somebody told me it was true, well, of course it's true. So if people say to us, you know, you know, you aren't worth anything. Who do you think you are? Why don't you work harder? What's wrong with you? We just hear that and we go, something's wrong with me. I don't work hard enough. I'm not worth anything. And we literally don't have the brain capacity to go, wait a minute. You don't have the authority to tell me that. I mean, like we don't have that. So we take these truths about the world and about ourselves in it. And they become unconscious beliefs that until we actively and consciously look at them and, and give ourselves contradicting evidence, that we will, we will carry them until they are addressed and, and we can build new neural pathways and new beliefs. So for me, as a little kid, my family felt very unsafe. There was violence and um, I was scared most of the time, or at least a lot of the time. And for me, my way of coping was, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just a good enough little kid and make people happy, Nobody will be hurt. Everybody I love will be safe. If I'm just good enough, I can do this. I've got the power. Well, I didn't. I was the smallest of everybody. I didn't have that power. But that's what my little non-fully formed brain came to believe because that was the only way I could figure out how to feel safe in this situation that I had no control over. So we each have our own way, our own beliefs we develop to cope with how scared we are. You know, if we have a lot of trauma, I was super scared, but even most of us, we have situations that we don't understand. So we try to figure out things that make sense. And it always is, it's about me, because that's the only thing we have any sense of power over when we're little. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense to me. Everything's revolved around our little universe. Yeah. Like we think it's our fault or we think, you know, it's just, I remember when I was a little girl, my, my parents were fighting on the lawn very, very late at night and um, they had been in many fights. Definitely the relationship was, and at the time the relationship was already over and I just right, didn't know right. it. Um, <laughs> my dad had somebody else in the house. I mean, like it, we, it, had, it had far <laughs> extended out and, right. um, but they, here they were fighting in the lawn. And I remember my little four-year-old self just trying to like, 
I thought in that moment that if I could get them to stop, that I could save this family. And I, you know, for years and years, I blamed myself for that. That I was never going to stop that situation, you know, and so, but I didn't know it for, I, and it's so interesting how little kids, they don't, they don't know, distinctively know what's going on. In a way, it's all about us. It has to be. And so we can only see it in that kind of way. And so, you know, for years, you continue to hold on to this, like, oh, if I could have only stopped that circumstance, like things could have just been so much different. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When we look back as adults, we're like, oh, I you know. poor little kid. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my, absolutely. So that is how we become perfectionists, right? We, we hear something and we register it. And as a child, we do, there's only some, we just have that limited capacity to do what we can with what we've got. And we establish a belief around that. And that tent content, it continues to be per, pervasive in our life, potentially into adulthood. And for some of us, well into adulthood. Right? I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then you talked a little bit about kind of what the brain is doing at that time, but can you speak to me a little bit about what our brain is doing today? Like, so as an adult, I'm holding on to these beliefs, these limiting beliefs. I don't really know, Dr. Jane, that they are limiting beliefs. It's, they're just kind of driving the course of my, my activities, my decisions. And sometimes those are probably, unfortunately, limiting beliefs are limiting beliefs for a reason. They're negative. They're not necessarily serving us. What is going on? What is the role of our brain when we're experiencing these negative thoughts? Right. It's a great question. So we know that 90 to 95% of our actions and thoughts are unconscious, which makes sense because if we had to think, okay, how do I get up out of this chair again? How do I walk? We need a lot of this stuff to be unconscious so we can use our brain power to focus on other stuff in our lives. But a lot of that 90 to 95% is these unconscious beliefs that we acquired, you know, decades ago for many of us. So the brain is running those programs and we don't have to think about it. Just like we don't have to think how to breathe. We don't have to think about, wait a minute, am I worthy? Our brain is like, nope, you're not. If, if that is our story, it's like, nope, you're not worthy. You're not worthy of that. You're not worthy of that. You're, it's like unquestioned. It's the automatic response. And we also know that the neocortex, the newest part of our brain, there, there's some that believe, and it makes sense to me, that our ego might be based in our neocortex. You know, and our neocortex is always searching for problems. It's always searching for danger. It's always searching for what's wrong so we can try to address it so we're going to be safe. Unless we're actively engaged in something and we're totally present and we aren't, our brain isn't constantly searching, it is, it is looking for danger. It never says, look at all those sweet strawberries there. Those flowers are beautiful. It's like, no, did you see that movement? Did you hear that noise? What, what it, why is he looking that way? You know, what's, what's wrong? What, what's he thinking about? So it's constantly searching for danger. And we have research says anywhere from like 50,000 to 70,000 thoughts a day. Most of them negative, most of them repetitive. Most of our thoughts are not new thoughts for the day. So our brain is on automatic for negative, what's wrong, danger, and what's bad. And that's why uh, practices like gratitude and focusing on our capacity and our capability and what we're doing right. We're um, literally creating new neural pathways to try to counterbalance those ones that are running without any effort. Like we don't have to consciously think, now I will think bad thoughts. Now I will beat myself. We don't know. It just happens. Just unbidden. So the focusing on what is in our power, what is positive, what is helpful, what is good, um, we're, we're literally consciously creating those new neural pathways. So we have more of a choice when we notice, oh, look, I'm beating myself up again. Well, what do I want to think in this moment? Do I want to continue that path? Do I want to continue to say what a loser I am because my boyfriend left me for somebody else? Or do I want to give myself some compassion here? Do I want to be curious about, wow, why do I believe that? That's a fascinating thought that I'm not worthy because one person is not dating me. So that's the role our brain naturally plays. And that's what we can consciously do to try to offset and create new patterns, like myelinate the neural pathways so they will come superhighways versus just the negative ones. Mm, mm. 
it's easier, kind of easier said than done to <laughs> myelate them, to, you know, to create those new neural pathways. Cause I know that we are stuck so much in our, in our pathways and our kind of ways of thinking. And what I understand is have done so much research on kind of that stranger danger syndrome or the body constantly sensing to see if we're okay. And it's not even just the brain. I know that even our cells inside it, like our cells in our body, everything is always trying to sense danger. And, you know, whether we like it or not, the brain has created these loops, you know, of reminder of like, well, you don't want that to happen again, you know? And so, you know, in a, these are a lot of protective mechanisms that definitely sometimes do not serve us. And so I'm so glad. I love the way that you put it so eloquently because whether we like it or not, like this is kind of just the natural wiring that happens. There's nothing wrong with us. It's just our brain. It's just the brain. Just the <laughs> brain honestly thinks it's doing good by us. And that's why I think it's so, so, so critical that we have these beautiful rituals and we have the, this mindfulness and we have ways in which that we can retrain the brain. So I love that we're going to get into that. Now, there are, you had, you had talked a little bit about this when we were having our conversation earlier, that there are certain words that can make us feel worse about ourselves. And are these words that we say aloud to ourselves or is it an internal dialogue? Talk to me a little bit about how this even comes to play for us. It's both. We say it aloud all the time. We say them aloud all the time, and we also think them. The Here's what I always say to my clients. I say, and actually anybody who will listen to me, I will give this because it's so important. If I were queen of the world, I would ban the words should, must, have to, and need. And for Midwesterners, gotta. Because what they do is they automatically create resistance in us. Because if we're telling us, I should do this, I have to do this, I need to do this, well, it's probably important that we do it, that we do it. There's a reason we're saying it. But by saying it, I have to do it, it means we haven't done it. So automatically, we're feeding our brain the information, you are a loser. Why haven't you done it already? It's clearly super important and you are not doing it. What is wrong with you? So that's the unconscious subtext that comes with, you have to do this. You have to, you need to do this. And it's, it's um, actually, you want to, can you do an experiment with me? Sure. Well, it's so funny. Just really quickly, Dr. Jane, you had said that earlier today when we were having our moment and I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if I've used any of the words just yet. You know, right, we were still having a conversation <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I wonder what those are. And I will tell you what, I am guilty of using those words every single day. It was so funny. Yeah. I was talking to my husband before this call. So I was like, okay, I got to get back in the room. I got another <laughs> But even before that, I was telling my husband, like I told you that my, I just turned in my manuscript and my schedule finally opened up to the world again. And um, sure enough, every little slot that could get booked, it is booked solid. I was telling my husband, because I missed a meeting with him and it's today has been a little bit of an interesting day. And I, and I always say things like, you know, some, for some reason, my day isn't going the way I wanted it to go. And he's like, and I remember he, right before I jumped back in here, he's like, you need to stop saying my day isn't going the way that I wanted to go. Cause you say it all the time. And I was just giggling and here we are. I cannot tell you how many times I'm like, Oh my God, I need to go do this. I need to have, I have to go do this. You know, right? and, and my day isn't going the way that it went. Cause I haven't done the things that I said I needed to have to do. <laughs> yep. I know. And oh, just goodness. as you're talking about it, do you feel the stress in your body? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And right? I'm a, and you know, like every woman, I'm just checking off those boxes left and right. Oh, you know? Absolutely. And, so and I loved, I was listening to um, one of your podcasts, one of your recent ones. And I loved that, she, that your guest said, she puts on her computer, you're not going to get it all done today. Deal with it. I'm like, oh, I'm putting that on my computer. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Okay, I'm down for the experiment. Sorry. Okay. So basically, you kind of already did it. What I've noticed is that why I always do experiments with people when I'm giving tools is our ego will say, well, that's not going to work. That's stupid. That's too simple. And my tools are very simple because those are the ones that will actually kind of they go it's like subterfuge behind the ego. Because if we try to do something big like, I will write a book in a week. Our ego is going to say, no, you're not. Who do you think you are? That's stupid. You'll never do that. But if we say, I'm going to write a paragraph, our ego is like, well, that, that's not too big. That can't be dangerous. Okay, go ahead. 
So it doesn't, it doesn't hit the ego's radar, right? Because the ego's job is only to keep us safe. It's not to make us thrive. It's not to make us happy. It's not to bring us peace of mind. It's to keep us alive. And it does a super good job at that. Like I wouldn't want to be driving a car on a highway without my ego functioning. It's going to look out for the car. Are you too far away? Are they too close? It's like, it's awesome that way. It keeps me alive. But it doesn't work so much as our master. Like there's a beautiful quote. The ego is a wonderful servant and a horrible master. It becomes our quote authority, right? This is what you should do. So when we say stuff like I need to, actually, yeah, that's the experiment. Is there something you need to do? There's always something choose one I need thing. To do. Choose one thing you need to do. <laughs> I need to cut my book down because it was too long when I submitted it to my editor. Awesome, that's a great one. So now close your eyes, mm-hmm. and what do you feel in your body? Oh, I, I've been feeling resistance to this. I mean, there's right? a lot of resistance. Yeah. Yeah, and where do you feel the resistance in your body? In my gut, mostly. Your gut, great, beautiful noticing. Now say, it's a good idea for me to cut my book down for my editor. It is a good idea to cut my book down for my editor. And what do you notice? It's a little less, it's a little less triggering. I think because I'm already triggered by it a little bit. Right, absolutely. Yeah, these aren't like now you are being in Nirvana peace land, but right. it, it reduces a little bit of the stress. Mm-hmm. So something that's important for you to do, you're not adding stress to do it. So literally, when we use the words need, must, should, have to, we are creating an extra layer of pressure. And an ex- so that we have to push through in order to do the task that we think is important. So what I would use instead of should, must, have to, need, and gotta is it's a good idea. It'd be helpful. An option is, and only if it's really, really true, I want to and I'd like to. Mm. I've never had anybody say, I want to do my taxes without their body saying, you uh, no. are lying. <laughs> I've heard another one too to turn I have to into I get to. I get to. I get to. Yeah. Because there's a lot some... of times where we, there's a lot of things that we're so, I mean, the fact that I get to cut this beautiful book down for Penguin Random House, like there's so many wins in that. Like how many people get the opportunity to even submit a book to the biggest publishing house in the world. And so there's a lot of get to there, even though it's so easy to say the have to. Right. And when we're in the right state with that, mm-hmm. it can actually take us right into gratitude, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you did with it. I get to do that. I get to submit to this huge publisher. Like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I get to is a really nice one also. Yeah. Some people, if they say they get to and it triggers negative, mm. depends. It's like I get to, like, well, now I feel guilty because I get to and other people don't. It's like tailoring it to work for us. For sure. That makes so much sense. I love that. Yeah. And I've worked on the get to a lot. It requires repetition to be consistently rep- repetitive because I find that it's all said and good until you're at that tipping point of stress. And then all of a sudden it all just goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And that's where compassion comes in. Like as a therapist, it's really humbling if I feel depressed or if I get stressed out, or if I'm anxious, or I feel overwhelmed, I'm just like, wow, I'm a therapist. I teach people tools all day long, and I'm having an issue here that my tools aren't working with today. And at those moments, self-compassion is the hugest gift. I, I literally, I got this from Tara Brock. I just put my hand on my heart and go, I'm hurting. And so I'm, I can be with myself in this emotion that's not making me happy, And that I was judging myself on and I can cut the judgment and go, I'm just hurting right now. I've got tools. They aren't working. I'm just going to hurt right now, period. And then amazingly, it softens it just because I'm I'm with myself and being kind to myself. I like that. Another one I've heard, a mentor of mine who I love is Mary Morrissey. And one of the things that she's been saying so much recently is extra grace required. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Just and like Liz- everyone deserves a little extra grace right now. Absolutely. Liz Gilbert was interviewed by Chris Anderson for the TED Connects. And she said, nobody's ever been through a global pandemic before. So it's time for a blanket of mercy. And I'm like, oh, I love that image. A blanket mm-hmm. of mercy. It's like extra grace, a blanket of mercy. Those are super helpful 
when we're under high stress or even when we're under normal stress. <laughs> Definitely. Stress is at an all time high. You know, you know, people are struggling with mental health. You know, you and I were talking about that because that's that is the deal of it. And they think, you know, as this is getting recorded, you know, a lot of us are still going to feel like we're in a shelter in place circumstance. And, you know, the repercussions of such a massive shift in, and stress, and especially, you know, as this is a women's health podcast, so many women are really carrying the torch for their families and really holding, holding on probably to more stress than normal. And, yes. you know... I love that we're having this conversation because I know so often, you know, we're talking about that perfectionist, but women really do beat themselves up, not experiencing the extra grace they really deserve. So I'm happy that we're having this conversation. I'm going to just steer the conversation because we're there a little bit. Talk to me about what are some of the things that you've kind of have bear witness to last couple of months or maybe even the last couple of weeks. I feel like things have shifted even the last couple of weeks and have there been tools that you have found to be effective during a time of unprecedented change and unprecedented circumstance. Yes. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's a fascinating, (laughs) it's a fascinating time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I have been doing a lot, I learned this when I was reading about one of the books about polyvagal theory Mm, and it's the fastest way I know to activate our parasympathetic nervous system. So what you do is you cross your fingers and, you know, like the church steeple thing. And then you put them behind your head. And then uh, with your elbows out, keeping your head straight forward, you move just your eyes to the right until you yawn, swallow, or sigh. And my system does it automatically now because I do it so much. And then to the left, once again, keeping your head straight, your eyes to the left until you yawn, swallow, or sigh. And uh, yawning, swallowing, and sighing are symptoms or signals that our parasympathetic is activated. And because we are even more in, for most of us, or fight or flight now, that just that constant reset of the nervous system into, and in this moment, I can relax. And in this moment, I can relax. And Dr. Jane, in that pose, which I'm so excited people will be able to see when they watch the, the video on YouTube, when you go into this, this kind of positioning, is it that you're telling the body that it's time to relax? Is that what's happening? Well, it literally, uh, well, I think it works on two levels. One, the eye movement activates the ventral vagal nerve. Okay. Yep. So, which is, you know, one that activates the parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. All the way down. I mm-hmm. think that this aspect, the part of we're putting our hands behind my head, the author didn't say this. This is what I surmise is that our hands behind our head is a very vulnerable posture. Like all mm. our most we're exposed. We're exposed. Yeah. So by doing this, you're signaling to your brain through your body, I must be safe because I can have this pose and nothing is attacking me. Right? We do the same thing when we look left and right. We're giving because when we look left and right, we expose our jugular, right? So, yeah, our jugular, our all of it. And not just that, the brachial plexus is there. I mean, a lot of stuff is going on right? in the neck. Yeah. <laughs> so we use our body to signal to our brain, no, we're safe. We're okay. And then one of my very favorites, I got this from Rick Hansen, is to just say, to calm that little amygdala, I'm okay. In this moment, I'm okay. In this moment, I'm safe. In this moment, I'm fine. And it's weird. The first time I tried it, I was walking down the street and I got anxious for some reason. I don't know why, but I said, oh, I'm safe. And my, I could feel my system just go, I am. I really anticipated because I've, I've done a lot of the research as well. And I thought, I, I don't know how much of breath work you've incorporated too, but I was expecting breath work. I was like, just going to show me a breath work technique. And then, so I, I hadn't seen those techniques before. So quite fascinating. Yeah. And breath is an awesome way. It's, you know, one of the fastest way, if not the fastest to process cortisol and adrenaline out of our system. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I was listening to another podcast and she said, she was talking to the person and she said, have you noticed that the breath work is stressing people out right now? And I'm like, mm. oh, that's true. Because one of the things that happens is when we pay attention to our breath, we're paying attention to our breath and we're like, oh no. And we automatically stress because our brain is naturally looking for what's wrong. It's like, am I breathing too fast? So breath work can actually initially stress people out. 
Mm-hmm. There's some people I teach it to and they're like, oh, no, I'm more stressed. I'm like, okay, don't do that. <laughs> Got it. You know, I, I always educate people on, because I work with some, I work with the stress response system and trying to calm down the yeah. HPA axis and the fire of the amygdala. And I use um, a lot of essential oils. I leverage a lot of those chemical constituents there. Um, but then it, they really pair beautifully with breath work. To get, well, you're, you're breathing them in is always a good idea to get the chemical constituents into the brain. And I had never thought of that. I always teach it in massive groups. Like I've taught it to an arena of people. Right? And so I've never, it's never always been a one-on-one experience. So I've never been able to ask or assess on a personal level, is this serving you? I've always just right. done it. Into- <laughs> so that gives me interesting perspective as well. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. So one of the things I always say is experiment. If it reduces your stress, awesome. If it increases your stress, play with it. See if you can switch it a little bit so it actually does reduce your stress. So it's a beautiful opportunity to help people, you know, access their own inner wisdom and and be curious about the tool versus, oh, it doesn't work for me. Because that's what our ego is going to do. Oh, I'm stressing out. Of course, nothing works. You know, our ego is fascinating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is. Oh, my God. That's so fascinating. So I love that you've given us some really phenomenal tools to think about, especially right now where we're feeling a little bit on the fritz, you know, everything just feels fried. And so I love these beautiful, these beautiful ways in which we can integrate these throughout the day. Love that. Then one of the things, you know, I want to kind of gear us back to the perfectionists and the limiting beliefs and kind of how we get ourselves kind of wrapped up in it. And definitely the big aha moment, I think everyone's hearing is like, oh my gosh, how do I even get rid of the words I use every single day? (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about positive affirmations. And I know that you said, you know, and I have, this is, this is something I have experienced. You know, I've, I've led a lot of women, especially women entrepreneurs over the years, um, kind of stepping into that next zone um, and limiting beliefs kind of pulling us back. And so using the power of affirmations, but what I had found, and I'm sure that you're going to tell me more about this, but oftentimes women have, at least the women I've worked with, speaking from a a group of a couple hundred women, that many times the affirmations don't feel, It's you're talking about the ego, as they don't feel real and they feel like they're a lie. And so I've seen affirmations really just bounce back because (laughs) no, they're not believing it. And so speak to me about people always touting positive, say positive affirmations every single day, but how they can be very difficult for people and at times really make people feel more crappy than feeling good about themselves. I know. Isn't that fascinating? Beautiful noticing. So I first discovered my hate for affirmations uh, when I was reading a book by Wayne Dyer, it was the first positive affirmation kind of book I ever read. I was going to say, just, yes. Yeah, it was, I was not in a good spot. So I was reading and he basically said, your thoughts create your reality. So what you're thinking now is is how you will feel. And I'm like, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. And I threw the book away and I'm like, that's it. I'm I'm screwed. Why even bother? Because all I think is negative thoughts. <laughs> that's the space I was in. It was super awesome. But... What I discovered, and the person who really turned affirmations around for me is Dana Wild. She wrote a book called Train Your Brain. And what she does is she's the first one I saw who actually creates affirmations that work and how to modify them so they stretch you a little bit without overwhelming your ego and making you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a loser. I can't even make affirmations work for me. You know, this is, this is what our brain does. So. One of my favorites is when I ask my clients what they want, it's an overwhelming question. They're like, uh, 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 want? What do I want? I have to do things. I need things and I should do things, but what do I want? And it, it questions, it you know, floors them. And so I say, well, what do you want to want? And then I say, oh, I want to want this. I, wanna, I want to want to like myself. I want to want to feel confident when I go into a meeting. I want to want. And so wanting to want is less of a threat to our ego. Want to want feels safe to say, and it still stretches us because we're not there, but we want to want it. And when I say I want, when I'm saying something about something that I don't have yet, but I want to want it, I literally, like, I move forward with my body and my chest expands a little bit. I want to want it. Another one of my favorites is that a friend of mine taught me is I'm the kind of person who. 
So I used to go out to the East Coast for coaching and meetings would start at eight and I'm a West Coaster. So meetings would start at eight, which is 5 a.m. my time. I'm not Very a morning early. person, right? <laughs> yes. that's, that's being there ready after eating breakfast and everything. And I know sitting all day is not my happy place. So it's super helpful if I exercise. But I would never do it because I'm supposed to be at the meeting at five and my whole psyche is going, just sleep. But my friend said, well, why don't you say, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. And I went, oh, I like that. So I was saying it all the day before, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. I'm the kind. So my alarm went off the next morning and I went, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. So I got up and I took a walk and discovered the neighborhood. And then I had the, a great meeting because I'd seeded my consciousness the day before of, well, yeah, I want it for a reason. I am the kind of person who does that. And for some reason that doesn't trigger our ego as much. So, you know, when people say, I remember when I first started doing affirmations, I was in grad school, very poor, right? I was like, I'm beautiful. I have enough time and I'm wealthy. And, you know, no, I didn't feel any of those things. But instead, I'd like to feel like I have enough money. Well, yeah, of course I do. I, I would like that. So I would just say, I'd like to feel I have enough money. I'd like to feel I have enough money. I'm the kind of person who likes to feel they have enough money. I would, I want to want to feel like I have enough money. So if, if any affirmation is too strong, just take it down until it's a little bit of a stretch. And then you say it enough until you're like, yeah, of course, totally. I totally am down with that. And then, so you say, well, I want to feel like I have enough money and that's okay. And you say that until you're comfortable. And so you bring your ego along step by step onto the process until you're like, yeah, I do actually feel like I have enough money. I may need not even be making any more money, but I feel like I have enough money. I remember I learned the wacky way our brain works. I was starting my private practice and I, I wasn't a good marketer, so I didn't. So I had like three clients and I wasn't making a lot of money and I didn't have a lot of money. So I made the decision that I'm going to buy a cup of coffee a week whether I have the money or not. I'm the kind of person who wants to buy a cup of coffee a week. So I did. And literally in a few months, I wasn't making any more money, but I was going out to eat. I was paying my bills down more. Like, I don't know what happened. It's like kind of miraculous to me because I wasn't making any more money, but I had more money. And it was how I was viewing my relationship to money that changed through these small little, in that case, it wasn't affirmation so much as small little actions. Like I didn't buy a huge meal or a new car just to prove I had enough money. I just bought a cup of coffee a week. And that was enough to start to shift my underlying belief pattern. It was awesome. Mm. I love it. And I and absolutely know that those things definitely pay off. I love the the wording of I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise. I'm going to try it because you're absolutely right. I've been a West Coast girl my whole life. And if I'm at a three hour, a three day conference in New York and everything starts at eight o'clock in the morning, I'm the kind of person who likes to exercise once I get home. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> If I'm there for an extended period of time, I'll make it work. And so I love that so much. Those are wonderful. And I, I love those little, you know, how we used to teach people affirmations is we would call them affirmations. And so we would pose it in the form of a question instead. And that was the way that we did it. I love your methodology way more than because we were trying to like, well, you know, if we, if we pose it into a question, then you force the brain to answer. Opposed right. to, yes. And so opposed to just making a statement that the ego doesn't believe, you put yourself in a position where you make a decision and, you know, in the, hopefully in the, you know, in, in the right direction where you're just like, yeah, that's exactly what, yes, yes. And so those, we call them affirmations. Affirmations. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. That reminds me of another one that Dana Wilde talks about, which is you say what you want because, and then it could be anything. But because you put the word because in there, your brain, the same thing is now it's looking for the answer. Yeah. Like, it's looking I, for the, and you're trying to justify it. Yes. Yes. Unconsciously, your brain's like, I'm on it. I'll find the reason. 
It's kind of like when someone cuts in front of you, but they have a reason for cutting in front of you. Uh And so you're just like, oh, okay. But if they cut in front of you without a reason, it's, it's not very easy for them to cut in front of you. Right. And so, uh, you know, as, as long as you've got an excuse for why you're doing the thing you probably shouldn't be doing, usually people are pretty okay with it. Right. Because the brain rationalizes it. Yeah. Yeah. And using your brain, it's, it's a basically a brain hack. Um, Yeah. You know, I, I like myself because I want to, I mean, it could be that simple. I like myself because I like bananas. It doesn't really matter what's behind the because. Your brain's going to just, because, because, because there, there must be reasons. She's saying there are reasons. There must be. Let's find them. I love this. And you're absolutely right. Because here's the thing we talked about earlier in this episode, in this interview, was that the brain's going to do what the brain's going to do. And so if you can figure out ways to hack the normal processing of the brain, the, the negative mindset, the beliefs, the thoughts that are just constantly the 50 to 70,000 thoughts we're having every day and interrupt them with these hacks, you really begin to shift that neuroplasticity that you were speaking of. And we begin to think differently a little bit over time, kind of like the coffee, you know, every week I'm, this is my treat. I deserve it. I work hard. And then all of a sudden that shifts the way that you think about your circumstance, your financial circumstance, it opens the door to so much more. Yay. I love that. Well, gosh, Dr. Jane, you have been, this has been such a fun and fascinating interview for me. I know that everyone's going to want to know where to find you, where to learn more about you. Tell me a little bit more about your book. I know that we have a link that could take people to the book. Love for you to spend a little bit of time and share with us what that's all about. Great. Well, the book I wrote because, you know, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And at a certain point, I wanted for years just to have a full private practice as a therapist. And that finally happened. And then I'm like, well, what now? What else is there? Because I'm one of those, you know, I listen to one of your podcasts. You're just like, I'm. And what's the next? There's now next thing. There's more. Here's my <laughs> next book. Now I got to get my book. whole life is what's next. <laughs> exactly. So I did the same thing. Like I had a 10 year goal and I met it. And six months later, it wasn't enough because I'm a perfectionist, right? So I thought, okay, I can't see any more people because it's just too much for my nervous system. I have a limit. How do I reach more people? Because I love these tools and they work. So I thought, okay, I'll write a book. And see if they work with people who don't have me in the office. So I use these tools that I developed for myself and that I use with my clients. And I wrote a book to give people, one, the knowledge that they're not alone. Like I share, I share some of my own struggles and my own wacky brainness in the book. And just really simple tools to shift how we practice thinking about ourselves and being with ourselves. So it's a very short book. It's like less than 50 pages. So it's very doable, but it's like short little things and it get, helps people give compassion to themselves for how they naturally are. And at the same time, knowing they have choice about how they, to be redundant, choose to be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I love that it is so short right? and succinct. So my, I just, you know, I told you, I just turned my book in and it is running over 700 pages long. So oh we've got to, we, we are, we are cutting that down. I yeah. get to cut nice it down. Brain there. Yeah. Nice. I get to <laughs> cut it down. <laughs> so that is not 700 pages long. Right. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that. It's, it's so, so consumable and we can get it. I know the website was, and I'll have it in the show notes for this episode, everydaylove.me. And I take it. It's on the, the landing page of the, of this website. Yeah, it's on Amazon. But if you actually want a PDF of the book, if if people sign up for my love notes, which is just monthly, pretty much monthly newsletter, giving tips for stress reduction and just ways to think and be in the world to give us more self-compassion and kindness, then if you sign up for that, you'll get a free PDF copy of the book. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Is there anywhere else, Dr. Jane, that we should go and check you out? Um, I've got a Facebook page, everydaylove.me, where I post videos and quotes that inspire me and then stuff that I offer, I will also post on there. Wonderful. Well, it was such a pleasure to have you come on and share all of these wonderful techniques and hacks and giving us a broader understanding of why and how we think the way that we do and how we can, how there's hope for us all and we can reframe it. (laughs) I think that's the big one. So often people will come on and it's like, well, this is the way it is. I I don't really have a lot for how to fix it. 
So thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I had a delightful time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Did you see a little of yourself in Jane's descriptions today? I know I did. Especially those three things we shouldn't say to ourselves. Have to and need to are very common phrases that I use on the daily. I've been working on I get to instead of saying I have to. But when I'm up against endless deadlines, that's the language I know and I use. Because for some reason, talking like that to myself seems to help me get things done. Now, the biggest thing I walked away, the biggest lesson I walked away from this interview was this. We are all amazing and we are showing up to do our best and that level of best is plenty. You are enough and you are worthy. We all are. I see you and I see how hard you work and sacrifice for those around you. For that, you deserve all the awards, all the wins, all the praise. Now, if this interview inspired you in any way, I want to invite you to check out her incredible resource, Get the Roadmap to Self-Acceptance by downloading Dr. Jane's book, Everything is Perfect, Just Not Me. She has got this so dialed in. Thousands of people, 15 years of private practice, all disseminated into this beautiful book that you can download for free. Now, the link is going to be in the show notes, so make sure to go click it and grab your free downloaded copy of her book. And I just want to say thank you so much for stopping by and listening into the Essentially You podcast. On this Friday's Q&A, this is a question I get a lot. And that is, what is the number one supplement you recommend for women? Now, I don't know if the supplement's going to surprise you in any way or form, but it is a game changer. And it's a supplement that we should all be on every single day. So join me for Friday's Q&A to learn what that supplement is. And by all means, feel free to guess between now and then. I know that you probably have an idea, but it's definitely something that we need to incorporate every single day into our daily recommendations. Until then, have an amazing day. Bye.